0: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BDW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Kane, Kenway, Scurvy Pete, Hayfay, Zuman, Black Tip, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. I try to think of a suitable mental exercise to really put myself in the mindset of the pirates that sailed during the golden age of piracy, but I invariably come up short. It's because I think, well, it's because I'm an American, and my mindset is very rooted in the American experience. I could imagine relocating to another country, adopting their customs and language, and really loving the experience, but I would never stop being an American. The pirates, though, lived in a very different world. They were absolutely children of their own nations, but they lived in a region that was... well, it was a melting pot that didn't yet have an identity of its own. The West Indies, the Caribbean, had so many small colonies of so many different nations, And they all existed so close to one another. In the span of an afternoon, at most a week, they might hear people speak Spanish and English and French and Dutch and Danish and German and Taino dialects and half a dozen different African languages. And then they would hear all of the hybrids that were busy being born out of that mesh of languages. However, most people that were born into that environment were deeply nationalistic. Whatever circumstance threw it them, they were still English or Dutch or French, except for the pirates. See, they were outlaws. They were villains of all nations. No country would give them a home. No country would give them succor. So they were forced outside of their nationalistic views. This probably started in the era of the privateers, the buccaneer era, where we are now. See, they all worked for commissions. Lorho de Graff and Michael Andres, well, they were Dutch, as were hundreds of other privateers, but they accepted French commissions, and they served France loyally. De Graff actually earned honors and was given a position of power in the French military. He tossed aside his homeland to fight a war against his people. Now, that wasn't true for everyone's experience. The English, most of them, tried to stay loyal to their home, but they were deemed outlaws, for continuing in a trade that their home nation had hired them to do. I mean, imagine if you were offered a government commission to relocate and to own your own business. It turned out to be quite a profitable enterprise. And then, after a few months, that government turned around and told you, wait, no, you don't get to own a business. You're going to be flipping burgers for minimum wage. And if you fail to flip burgers, we'll hang you. What would you do in that situation? So, the English and the Dutch national identity, at least for the pirates, it started to wane. They had to seek out other nations in order to live their lives. Whenever they could, they would seek out French commissions. Strangely, though, it was actually the French pirates that kept their national identity strongest during these years. For example, a... Flotilla of smaller French vessels that was part of a larger fleet sailing under Captains de Graff and André Zoon, that flotilla made for a Dutch settlement in 1684, hoping to trade. They were rebuffed by the governor there because of their association with the two Dutch pirate captains. Ravno de Lusanne, who was there, wrote after being denied entry into the settlement, quote, We were punished for the knavery of these Dutchmen practiced towards their own people. End quote. He, in this passage, fails to recognize that the said knavery was accomplished with French commissions by his own commanders sailing from a French colony. That didn't matter to Lusanne, though. They were Dutch, he was French. By his logic, it was a failing of the Dutch, and that Dutch governor should hold himself accountable for the actions of a Dutchman, regardless who signed his commission. Lusanne failed to recognize what Many of the buccaneers that weren't French were slowly coming to learn. Many French buccaneers failed to learn this, at least for now. Those other buccaneers, the English and the Dutch, they were criminals, not patriots. They were outlaws. They were outcast. They were men and women without a home, without a country, and without a king. This is episode 65, knavery. That episode with the Dutch governor almost saw the whole party with Ravenau de Lusanne arrested and potentially hanged. It was a major factor in the decision of those French crews under Lorho de Graf to leave his fleet and to set out on their own. Namely, Captains Jean-Rose, Pierre Le Picard, and Mathurin de Martes, along with Ravno de Lusanne, they left the fleet and made for the sea between Portobello and Cartagena. They captured a ship out of Margarita that was carrying mostly corn, and they sailed it for the coast. Now, Lusanne makes note of what he calls, quote, "...a most cruel, barbarous, and savage Indian nation." And then he goes on to say that they eat without distinction whatever they can catch. We returned without having the curiosity to make a trial of their teeth. So, yeah, they decided not to stick around long enough to get eaten. Naturally, most of these accounts of savage Indian cannibals are untrue, or at least wildly exaggerated. There were some groups that engaged in ritualistic sacrifice, and they were prone occasionally to eat the hearts of their victims or other symbolic parts of their anatomy. It was, in an effort to gain their power, it was all about dominance and strength. It was ritual, though, not, ''Huh, I'm famished, let's go find a nice fat Frenchman to eat.'' Mostly, though, this voyage after leaving Lorho de Graff was uneventful until their group reached the Golden Isle, where they met a few other French pirates that had been left behind by Captains Francois Groinet and Jean Lescouillet. Those pirates were flying the French flag. They were hoping to flag someone down that would give them a lift home. You see, they decided not to join the other pirates on their way to the Southern Ocean. This appears to have been the moment when they found out about the pirates in the Pacific Ocean. Now, they quite possibly may have heard about Francois Groenet and Jean Lesquiet before this moment, but it's the first time that Ravneau de Lausanne mentions it. So they deliberated about what to do, and finally, the three French captains decided to follow their compatriots into the Pacific Ocean. They probably gave their prize vessel over to those marooned pirates to get them home, and they burned the rest of their boats upon reaching the main. When they did, the pirates were approached by a delegation of Kuna guides. I'm curious about what languages everyone spoke here. Now, we know that the Kuna spoke their own language, and the English spoke a bit of Kuna, but I doubt that the Kuna spoke French or that the French spoke Kuna, so it's most likely that everyone involved spoke Spanish, which was... You know, the lingua franca there on the main. The kuna had instructions for the French pirates about how to behave among them and what to expect going in. There had been moments in the past where some of the more rough cut pirates had attempted to take liberties in the kuna settlements or otherwise offended the kuna somehow, and, well, there were times when that nearly saw the entire alliance fall apart. Now, I haven't found any records of the Kuna exacting justice on any pirates, not so far at least, but they did guide the pirates through miles and miles of dangerous terrain with all sorts of potential dangers for an unwary traveler. I imagine that if the Kuna decided among themselves that a pirate needed to die, well, they had ways of making that happen. The pirates, though, were unlikely to ask... Too many questions when they were all alone, essentially stranded out in the jungle with only their Kuna guides to get them out. But the Kuna that met the French pirates there on the coast also carried a letter for the pirates from the other French captains that were currently in Darien, Groenay and Lescouillet. The letter was left to let any pirates that followed them know of their intention to enter the Pacific and it let them know about where they planned to be so captain rose wrote a letter in response informing groney of their presence and their intention to join him the kuna runners carried the letter off to deliver it this well this alliance between the kuna and the buccaneers was turning out to be quite beneficial Facilitated trade, which was good for both sides. The pirates were able to trade for food and necessaries, while the Kuna were able to trade for European goods. Mostly they wanted iron tools and weapons. There was actually a brisk trade happening in good steel. It was important for the Kuna to arm themselves in their ongoing war against Spain. But this alliance created a secure path for the Europeans to cross the Isthmus without you know, dying or being captured by the Spanish. It really took very little effort on the part of the Kuna. They had to provide guides and foodstuffs for the pirates, but the return they got on that investment in time and supplies was phenomenal. They got significant aid in their war against the Spanish, which was their long-term goal here. But they also got access to technologies that they wouldn't otherwise have had access to, which gave them a leg up on many of their rivals in the region, not just the Spanish, but the other tribes around them. That alliance created what Dampier called a common road for privateers. It facilitated this entire gathering of pirates in the Pacific. Now, the original Pacific Adventure would never have happened under Sharp and Coxon without the aid of the Kuna, but this was really the only sensible route to the Pacific Ocean. The only other way was by sea, around the Cape of South America, but that was a huge investment in time and supplies, and it was deadly dangerous. This was the only route available to any but the most enterprising of pirates. However, that alliance was really between the English buccaneers and the Kuna people. Now, the French were perfectly willing to utilize the goodwill of the Kuna, but well, they didn't hold them in the same high regard that the English did. At least, Ravneau de Lussan didn't. When he writes about them, it's with a thinly-veiled contempt. He writes that they have... No religion and no knowledge of God, but he insists that they do hold communion with the devil. He writes of their lack of clothing and their failure to use gold and silver as proper coinage. He treats nearly everything that is a part of their culture as a failing of the Kuna. But we have to remember here that Ravno de Lusanne wasn't a scholar. This was just the journal of a common sailor. It was intended for publication, but... It doesn't have the same standard of scientific curiosity that the writing of Dampier, or Lionel Wafer, did. Ravno de Luzon goes on to talk all about their hardships, crossing the mountains and the rivers and the swamps and jungles of the Isthmus. They lost about six men in the crossing, which Luzon ascribes to the lax guidance of the cuna, but they made it to Santa Maria and the river, which led to the Gulf of San Miguel. The pirates began felling trees and constructing canoes, but the Kuna actually gathered food for them. They gathered bananas and fruits and root vegetables, mostly. And, as always, food seems to be a primary topic of these accounts. And, yeah, I get it. Food would have been at the forefront of their minds because they needed it to survive. And, in 1685, it would have made for fascinating reading back in Europe. When, well, when we get around to interstellar travel, people here on Earth will be fascinated by accounts of what our ambassadors to alien planets had for dinner. They will be alien delicacies that we can only imagine and maybe get a taste of at some point in our lives, once interstellar travel becomes commonplace. But here in 2018, I know what a plantain is. I'm not that interested in the taste of monkey flesh, what I want is, well, I want to hear accounts of the arguments between the crew. I want to hear about the tensions that hung over them. I want the drama that's there. But 17th century authors weren't tremendously concerned with drama. However, if there are any future astronauts listening to this podcast, when you are on your voyage of discovery and exploration, be sure to write down the juicy details of the crew I want to know about everyone who was there. I want to know about who was sleeping with who and who was fighting with who. If you do so, future historians will thank you. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? And Jethro, Box of Oddities, that is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. When the canoes were finally finished... Captains Rose and Picard and De Martez rowed downriver, where they were met by Captain Peter Harris. Now, they were able to abandon their canoes almost immediately. Harris had a ship, and they sailed with him to meet all of the other pirate captains gathered in the Pacific, Edward Davis and Charles Swan. There was Groinet, Lescouillet, there was Captain Townley, and then there were men like William Dampier and Lionel Wafer. Last time, when I mentioned this meeting, I brushed past a complication that arose when this last group of french pirates met up with the english now i questioned what sort of unmentioned prior relationships these pirates from different crews may have had with one another i pondered about the drama that we might not ever know about but that was definitely there lingering below the surface but there was one undeniably large piece of drama here at this meeting and it wasn't Under the surface, it was right out in the open. If you'll remember way back to the end of the first Pacific Adventure in 1681, John Cook, Edward Davis, William Dampier, Lionel Wafer, and a crew of about 50 other pirates broke away from Captain Bartholomew Sharp. They sailed north, back to Santa Maria, and crossed Darien to come out on the coast of the Caribbean of what they called the North Sea. There, after only a few days, they were met by a fleet of pirate vessels that offered them a ride. That fleet included John Coxon, who was their original commander. It included Jan Willems and George Wright. But it was mostly made up of French crews, and everyone there who had a commission was sailing under a French commission. Most notably, there were two captains, Jean Tristan and Jean Rose. There were several other French captains, but those are the two who are important right now. When they left the coast of Darien, they had a run-in with the Windward Fleet, and Captain Tristan got separated from the rest. He got left behind, and he held a grudge about that, and, well, he blamed the English for it. After a few months traveling around the Lesser Antilles, when they were finally approaching Saint-Dominique, well, well, the story differs here. There are two versions of it. If you believe William Dampier's version of events, the English captains Wright and Coxon left the fleet to return to Jamaica. Then, when there were only a few Englishmen left among them, Cook and Davis and Dampier and that lot, Captain Tristan arrested them. These were men that he'd helped rescue, but he put them in chains. Now, Cook and Davis and the other officers were taken to Petit Guave, where they were to be tried for piracy. Dampier and the rest of the regular crew members were marooned on Isla Avacha, where they could be collected later on by French authorities. Upon reaching Petit Guave, the English were left on board, in chains, while Captain Tristan and most of the other Frenchmen went ashore to discuss the situation with the authorities. That night, Cook and Davis led an escape, in which they freed themselves and their friends and took the ship of the treacherous, backstabbing French dog. But, if you believe Jean Tristan's version of events, the English were not arrested. They willingly joined his crew. They sailed with him. They served alongside his men. Then, when they arrived at Petit Guave, he went ashore to his home, and the English, who were still on board, staged a mutiny, killed most of the French that were left on board, and stole his ship because they were treacherous, backstabbing English dogs. Now, we may not ever know who was telling the truth here, but pirates being pirates, it seems more likely to me that Captain Tristan was telling the truth. At least, I can more easily imagine a tale of mutiny and thieving than a story of arrest and dealing with the authorities with the intent of seeing your compatriots hung. But then again, the French were lawful privateers. They had commissions from the governor with the authority of the king behind them. The English, on the other hand, were just pirates. They were operating outside the laws of their nation, and it might look really bad for a French crew to harbor these criminals. So maybe Dampier was telling the truth. But whatever the facts actually were, Captain Tristan lost a ship and he had his men killed. Jean Rose was a friend of his, and here he was in the Pacific. He had crew members with him on this voyage that had sailed with both he and Captain Tristan back when they rescued Davis and Cook and Dampier. Those men had lost friends when Cook and Davis led their revolt. The bachelor's delight, the admiral of this fleet down here in the Pacific, well, it was captained by none other than Edward Davis, and it was carrying William Dampier and 50-odd other English pirates that had betrayed Captain Tristan, at least in their view. It very nearly turned to guns and sabers and blood right there. There were men among those newly arrived French pirates that felt an insult of that magnitude deserved recompense right here and right now. But Captain Davis had a big ship. He had lots of guns, and he had a big crew. A fight right here and right now would certainly turn against the French. What's more, he had given a ship, out of the kindness of his thieving, rotten English heart, to a Frenchman, Captain Groinet. He didn't have to, but he did. And now they were all working together. And in that, there was another very solid argument to be made against killing the Englishman here and now. Their fleet was waiting on a Spanish treasure galleon out of Lima. A Spanish treasure fleet, in fact. Now, they could take a galleon or two or maybe more, but only if they put aside their differences and worked together. So, everyone agreed to sail together in an effort to capture that windfall of Spanish silver that was sailing toward them. But then came those weeks of waiting. They had Endless hours of sitting around, of rain and discomfort. There was tension on board the Bachelor's Delight among the English. There was even talk of mutiny. There was tension aboard the French vessel under Captain Groenet as well. But it wasn't talk of mutiny. It was talk of the English and what had happened three years earlier at Petit Guave. Jean Rose and his men... Discussed that English betrayal, that betrayal perpetrated by Cook and Davis and Dampier and much of the crew of the Bachelor's Delight with everyone else on board that French vessel. They began to turn minds against the English. The opinion of the pirates on board the Bachelor's Delight began to sour. But then on June seventh, sixteen eighty five, they encountered the Spanish treasure fleet. Only, as we discussed last time, it was coming from the wrong direction, and it was bearing down hard on the pirate's position. Ravneau de Luson writes, quote, On the 7th at noon, Captain Groyne gave us a signal that he described the Spanish fleet consisting of seven sail. He did so by lowering and raising his flag seven times. We discovered seven great ships coming toward us, with a bloody flag in the stern and a royal one on the masts. Now it was that the hopes which our crew had were lost, when they understood the fleet was into Panama, revived again. The desire they had to enrich themselves at the others' cost decimated them to that degree, that most of them threw their hats into the sea." Now Luzon wasn't on board the ship under Groinet, he was on board Peter Harris's ship, but he writes from the point of view of a French pirate in the fleet. And he writes that when the French ship sailed, it sailed away from the Spanish toward the main. Now he explains this as an attempt to stay out of sight. Remember, that ship didn't have any big guns on board. Groinet's plan was to wait until the Bachelor's Delight, who had many big guns, had engaged a galleon. Then he would be able to come up behind and board the Spanish vessel without anyone knowing he was there. But then the Spanish pulled their little trick with the lanterns in the night. They convinced the pirate that their flagship and the bulk of their fleet was further away than it actually was. When dawn came, the Spanish were right on top of the pirates, so the English ships had to flee. They were chased all around the bay in a running fight all day. The French, though, they stayed hidden. They, when the Spanish left, sailed away from the battle. They tried their best to avoid notice, and they did so. Now, to me, that seems like a smart move. If you are sailing a merchantman with no big guns, yeah, you don't want to get involved in a sea battle. Now, if Lusanne is to be believed, they intended to join the fight, but they decided to stay out of the chase. The English, though didn't see it that way. They saw that their effort had failed miserably. They had been outwitted and outgunned. William Dampier wrote of their failure, quote, Thus ended this day's work, and with it all that we had been projecting for five or six months. Instead of making ourselves master of the Spanish fleet and treasure, we were glad to escape them. End quote. That was a bitter failure. For the English who had been working towards this for some time, and many of them blamed the French on board Groinet's ship. For his part, Ravnaud de lussan writes quote, If we had met with this fleet, as we were in hope we should before they got an addition of strength in Panama, I do not question but things would have appeared with another favor than now they did. And that we should have possessed ourselves of their ships to bring back through the straits with wealth enough to live at ease end quote. The French were equally disappointed to miss out on this prize. Now, this treasure fleet wasn't why they had all come to the Pacific in the first place, not expressly at least, but it kind of was. A treasure galleon was the dream, it was the desire of every pirate in the new world, and they'd given their best shot to capture one and failed. There was plenty of frustration and anger to go around, and there was plenty of blame. It's suggested by the English, though it's not said outright, that the French decided to stay out of the fight as a sort of revenge for the perceived betrayal of Captain Tristan. It's even inferred that, well, that there may have been a plan, a plan that, When the battle was done and the English were tired and injured with all of their ships damaged, the French could have just swept in and taken the galleon and all her treasure and left the English with nothing. Now, I don't believe that that was the plan, but who's to say? Now, Dampier didn't come out and say any of that, but there was a lot of suspicion toward the French. There were hard words exchanged, and once again it looked like it might turn to violence. However, Dampier writes, quote, As for Gronit, that's Groynet, he said his men would not suffer him to join us in the fight. We were not satisfied with that excuse, so we cashiered our cowardly companion. Some were for taking from him the ship which we had given him, but at length he was suffered to keep it with his men, and we sent them away into some other place. End quote. Now that's not exactly how Luzon accounts what happened next. See, after they failed to take the treasure fleet and left Panama behind them, the pirates sailed on a small village, Puebla Nuevo. Now, Dampier doesn't even mention attacking this village. It's too small to be of any notice, apparently, but they actually invaded and did a fair amount of damage to the people that lived there. They attacked and took the town with ease. But the English were still a bit bitter about the whole affair outside of Panama. So, well, they lorded it over the French. There were more English pirates during their raid on Pueblo Nuevo, so they, well, the English took any command that the French could have held among themselves away. They demanded that the French take the most dangerous parts of town and also the least profitable areas. Anywhere that there was a small stronghold the French were in the front line. Then, the English went away and looted and drank and found all manner of comforts and entertainments, all while the French were still busy fighting. But it all came to a head at the church in town. Now, we need to remember that these Frenchmen here were not the Huguenot exiles of the 1650s era Brethren of the Coast. They were loyal French privateers, and... Thanks to King Louis's decree, they were all Catholic once again. Luzon writes, quote, The English and we had a difference in the descent we made upon this town, for, they being more numerous than we, would take advantage of us and be masters of the whole. Captain Townsley would have taken Captain Groinet's ship away, which Captain David had given him, but he was forced to give over his pretensions." One of the chief reasons that made us disagree was their impiety against our religion, for they made no scruple when they got into a church to cut down the arms of a crucifix with their sabers, or to shoot them down with their fusils and pistols, bruising and maiming the images of the saints in derision to the adoration we Frenchmen paid unto them. And it was chiefly from these horrid disorders we came to understand that the Spaniards equally hated us all. That was a tipping point for the French. The English could demean them and demand unfair service from them and gnash their teeth and spit out all sorts of insults against the French and their courage and their character, but they could not disrespect their faith. And it's telling here that in this argument, Lusanne, well, he, he believes that the Spanish should hate the English more because they are not Catholic. But he sees that, though the French had no love for the Spanish either, he sees that they are hated as much as the English. Their Catholic faith means nothing anymore when they allow themselves to be lumped in with this group of English heretics who are so desecrating a Catholic church. They fail to defend their own religion when they sail with these men. And you just know that some of the English pirates among them, some of the worst among them, really rubbed it in the faces of the French. Now, the English always enjoyed desecrating a Catholic church when the opportunity came to them, especially a Spanish one. But you know that they defiled and mocked the faith loudly. They laughed and paraded it around the French among them. They threw it in their face. So there, at Pueblo Nuevo the fleet decided to split up. They went separate ways. They did so strictly along national lines. The English all sailed northwest. The French, though, well, they were going to need guns to attempt anything worthwhile. Next time, we're going to follow the two groups of pirates on their diverging and intersecting paths there in the Pacific. However, I never came to a conclusion about my question earlier about the mental exercise that would allow me into the headspace of a pirate, to try and grasp their deteriorating sense of national allegiance while still holding firmly to all of the prejudices of their home countries. I tried to think of it in terms of war. Those nations were all constantly at each other's throats, so I thought about, as an American, what wars I could compare that to. I thought about Americans that ran off to join the forces of the Kaiser's German Empire, or even Nazi Germany, or even something like ISIS. But none of that fits to me. Those were enemies of a different nature. Now you can imagine England and France at war. Then you can imagine them becoming allies and fighting together. Then, once again, at war with each other. But I can't imagine those kinds of shifting alliances with the Nazis. Then there's the factor of their communities all being so close to one another, so intermingled. In the West Indies, all of those islands were claimed by one power or another, but they weren't always close to other islands of the same nation. Sometimes an island would be surrounded entirely by foreign powers. Sometimes they would all be enemies. So they had to learn to work with one another to survive even if they weren't allowed to do so legally, even if they had to do so through means of smuggling and piracy, they began to build a community that existed outside of national allegiance. And then there's the world into which all of this was happening. The 1600s, the late 1600s, were a time of change. The old power structures were beginning to crack. Religion and monarchy were changing. People, especially those who were on the... Other side of the globe from those power structures, well, they were growing less and less attached to those powers. So when I'm trying to imagine that world and the mindset that the pirates had to have been in, I have trouble doing so in the modern world. But earlier when I was talking about space travel and the ambassadors that we will be sending to alien worlds, well, that struck me. I think that when we begin to colonize extraterrestrial bodies, we're going to see something similar to what was happening there in the late 1600s in the Caribbean. Now, obviously, space pirates are going to exist, and they're going to be awesome. That goes without saying. But beyond that, when we're colonizing Mars, for example, well, that could go one of two ways. It could be, as many have hypothesized, a peaceful worldwide effort wherein people from all walks of life and corners of the globe will come together and work hand-in-hand to create a bright new future. Or, and this is my own pessimistic view, it could be a mad scramble of nation-states to claim whatever they can. Much like the colonization of the new worlds, the powers of the world, America, England, France... Brazil, India, China, most certainly, will all try to create their own colonies there. But then those barriers that will be created on a place like Mars will rub against one another, and there will be problems and fighting. And then, with all that happening, much like it did in those communities in the West Indies, there will be a group of people, probably the most dispossessed among them, that will realize that they are light years away from the centers of power that are causing all these problems, that are really impacting their lives in a very real way. And then through, well, probably through illegal means like space piracy, they'll begin to break those barriers down. Despite the best efforts of those in power, those dispossessed people will actually begin to bring about that bright new future of people working together, hand in hand. Or at least I can hope. Thanks for listening, everyone. I really appreciate it. I'd like to thank especially everyone who has helped support the show. Everyone who has signed up to be a patron on Patreon, I couldn't do this without you. And I'm about to begin sending out those models of the Queen Anne's Revenge in a Bottle. I hope you're going to like them. I also couldn't do this without everybody who has helped spread the word about this show. I always smile, and it still feels a bit surreal when I see someone mentioning the Pirate History Podcast out in the wild. Thank you to all of you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so over at brillig.com.au. That's B R I L L I G.com.au. After you're done over there, you can find more at our website, PirateHistoryPodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.